You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information on any of the topics you hear today, or to learn more about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. On behalf of the U.S. Institute of Peace and the other co-sponsors of this event, I want to welcome everyone here for the commemoration of the Treaty of Versailles. My name is Michael Yaffe. I'm the Vice President of the Middle East and Africa programs here at the Institute. Today, uh, we will be talking a lot about history, and so let me begin that by giving you a bit of history about USIP. Uh, the Institute was founded 35 years ago. It was the chief advocates for the Institute were uh, a bipartisan group of senators and members of Congress, veterans of World War II and the Korean War, who wanted to place uh, an institute, a national institution that would be committed to international peace, um, in addition to maintaining an armed capacity. They wanted an institute that could develop a range of effective options that could leash international violence in international conflict. Today, the Institute operates around the world with people on the ground, basically applying the expertise and research they, they obtain on managing conflict. They also provide training and education, and they provide convening of parties in conflicts in order to help basically advance to the management and reduction and conclusion of those conflicts. The idea for the Institute can be traced back to actually to the founding of the country. In his last address to Congress in 1796, President George Washington proposed two national academies, an Academy of Peace and an Academy of War. The Congress approved the Military Academy at West Point in 1802, and 188 years later, they approved the Institute of Peace. After moving its headquarters around Washington for a few years, finally they settled on the headquarters here at the corner of 23rd and Constitution, opening its doors on t in 2011. Um, and what's interesting about, by coincidence, it is on this very plot that George Washington had proposed where the Academy of Peace should be located. So when historians who uh, disdain the idea of uh, foreordained events, this one comes pretty close, I have to admit. In his farewell address, President Washington had warned the country about getting entangled in European wars. And for the next 120 years, the country remained rather neutral on the international scene outside the Western Hemisphere. In 1905, the U.S. emerged on the international peace-building stage when President Teddy Roosevelt helped facilitate the Treaty of Portsmouth, the treaty that ended the war, the Japanese-Russo War. In 1910, President Roosevelt was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts on the Treaty of Portsmouth. And in his address, in his acceptance address, he actually advocated for the idea of a League of Peace, the idea that there be some type of international institution that would help mitigate conflict. In August of 1914, the Great War broke out, and for the next three years, President Wilson tried to encourage the belligerents to basically reach some type of peace agreement 
before the United States could get dragged into the war itself. Eight months after the U.S. entered the war in April 1917, Wilson laid out the, a set of principles that he thought would help create uh, a lasting peace, the principles for creating the, 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 uh, the end of the war, if you will. These principles became known as the 14 points, which were crafted with the help of 150 scholars that became known as the inquiry, and we'll be hearing a little bit about more about the inquiry over lunchtime. Building on Teddy Roosevelt's idea, the 14 points included a proposal for the League of Nations in order to protect the independence of all countries. Wilson also proposed that the war aims should not be limited to, the nas to nationalistic goals, but rather for the unprecedented ambition of ending war itself, the war to end all wars. By not calling for harsh reparations or blame on Germany, blame for the war on Germany, Wilson hoped Germany would end, be induced to the peace table. And the 14 points became the basis for the armistice that went into effect on November 11th, 1918, 101 years ago this week. The Allied, leader, the Allied leaders met in France between January and June of 1918, 1919 to hammer out what became known as the Treaty of Versailles, a treaty to end the war. The Allied, the Allied leaders promised their people a better world. However, the results of those negotiations fell far short, and the world would soon learn that the making a sustainable peace was difficult and fraught with consequences. Today, we are here commemorating the 100th anniversary of the Treaty of Versailles. It's not a celebration of the treaty itself, which had many flaws and limitations. Instead, it's a commemoration that acknowledges that the treaty was a seminal event in world affairs, which, for better or for worse, had a profound impact on what followed and therefore is deserving of continued attention. It's a moment of reflection, similar to the event USIP conducted in 2014 on the 100th anniversary at the beginning of World War I. Our program today is a conversation between past and present. Studying history and looking at the past with honesty and integrity is important as it helps us make our views on the present more coherent and understandable. Our program will also include a conversation between the present and the future. Prognosticating about the future, particularly on world affairs and conflict, is dangerous and not, not for the lighthearted. The clues as to what may happen lay in a very clear-eyed understanding of the past and the present. I want to thank the distinguished experts who have graciously agreed to join us today for these conversations. Each are notable in his or her own right as experts on Versailles, World War I, international order, and peacebuilding, and their bios are available to all of you. I should also note a commonality among the speakers is that they are all Americans. Last June 28th, on the 100th anniversary of the, of the actual signing of the treaty, scholars from around the world had gathered in Europe for various commemorations, including the biggest one at Versailles. Indeed, we were actually originally planning to host this event in June, but many of the potential speakers that we wanted to invite actually were attending events in France. So today's program could be called an American perspective on the Treaty of Versailles. Now, about the modalities of, the, of today. The program includes three panels and a keynote speaker, Dr. Richard Haas, who is the president on the Council of Foreign Relations. Yeah. 
The panels will cover the past, the present, and the future. The first two panels and keynote speaker will be streamed live. A recording will be made available of these program, uh, this part of the program soon. The last panel will be treated as an off the record, will be treated off the record and under Chatham House rules. Moderators will lead the panel discussions, then the panels will take questions from the audience. If you would like to pose a question to the panelists, please write them down on the supplied note cards that are around the room and provide it to the staff members during the program. For those joining online, please provide your questions through Twitter at hashtag Versailles 100. To kick off the program today, we will begin with the panel about the past. It will focus on World War I, the Treaty of Versailles, and the post-Versailles period, commonly called the interwar years, the brief window during which the World War was suspended. To introduce the first panel and lead the discussion, I welcome Matt Naylor, President and CEO of the World War I Museum and Memorial. The first panel will, also, will be followed by a brief coffee break, after which the second panel will convene and be moderated by Wes Mitchell, former Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs, and now a senior advisor at USIP. The second panel will focus on the current international order emanating from World War I in the shadow of the Treaty of Versailles. And the third panel, after our lunchtime keynote address, will focus on the factors that will likely shape the international order, conflict, and peace in the 21st century. Robin Wright, a joint fellow with USIP and the Woodrow Wilson Center, will moderate this panel. In closing, I want to thank again our co-sponsors, the World War I Museum and Memorial, the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Scholars, the Doughboy Foundation, and the National History Day. They have been great partners in putting together this program, and I really welcome them to Washington as well. Now, over to you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, and uh, we're delighted to be with you today. Uh, the National World War I Museum and Memorial uh, is in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, we were um, in, in the latter part, just after the armistice, um, 83,000 people uh, in Kansas City fundraised $2.5 million in 10 days to build a memorial, which was opened then in 26 by President Calvin Coolidge, and then designated by the Congress in 2014 as the National Memorial for World War I, and uh, also the National Museum uh, designated in 06, uh, the most comprehensive collection of World War I archives in the world uh, is found at the National World War I Museum and Memorial. And it was on June 28 this year that we organized a symposium at the Palace of Versailles, uh, followed then by a dinner in the Hall of Battles, which was really quite an extraordinary experience. I tell you, at that time, there wasn't really any celebration much in, in uh, France, but there was certainly some commemoration. And uh, so now we're delighted to be joining uh, with our partners and especially the hosts of the US Institute for Peace here uh, for this conversation. Uh, signed in 1919, the Treaty of Versailles formally ended World War I. It's seen as a mediocre compromise, it was problematic from the very beginning, creating an unstable order in Europe. Many considered it destined to falling short uh, of ensuring a lasting peace. At the time, Mike Nyberg reminds us, observers read the treaty through competing lenses. A desire for peace after five years of disastrous war, demands for vengeance against Germany, the uncertain future of colonialism, and most alarmingly, the emerging threat of Bolshevism. 
And we're pleased to have with us three distinguished scholars to explore the treaty and the shaping of the international order in the immediate aftermath of World War I. Joining us on the panel today are Mustafa Aksakul, the Associate Professor of History, and uh, Nesuri Ergen, Chair of Modern Turkish Studies, Georgetown University. Robert Kagan, uh, the Stephen and Barbara Friedman Senior Fellows from the Booking, Brookings Institution, and Eric Law, uh, the Professor and Susan Carmel Chair of Russian History and Culture History at American University. Thank you for uh, being here on what is a historic day from all sorts of uh, angles. So we're pleased that you've chosen to be with us. World War I is sometimes called the first war fought to end war, a reflection on Wilson's justification for entering the war in 1917. So to the group of, of us, to you, how do you characterize the war in terms of this idea of a war fought to end war? And how did that shape the post-World War I peace as found in the Treaty of Versailles? So initial thoughts. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Is it on? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Uh, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for hosting this wonderful conference. I love the fact that we're talking about history. It's sometimes useful when we're dealing with the present. Um, the amazing thing is, uh, poor Woodrow Wilson. You know, he he was an incredible rhetorician, and he said some amazing things, which sometimes would make you raise your eyebrows. One of the things he did not say was the war to end all war. He never said that. Um, that was what Lloyd George said on the, uh, on the aftermath of the armistice. Uh, it's not in his war message in April. He did, that was not the reason he took America to war. Uh, it's not in his 14 points. Um, he never said it. <laughs> and I think it's worth uh, bringing that up because we tend to look at all this as if it was a lot of battling great ideas and incredible aspirations for changing the nature of humanity. And of course, there was a lot of rhetoric along those lines. But uh, the truth is that Wilson uh, went to war for very practical reasons, and the peace was aimed at dealing with very practical problems. Uh, it, and all the talk about ending war for all time uh, was, was not really what they were engaged in. They were trying to solve the very practical problem, at least in terms of Europe, uh, of what to do about Germany and how to provide France security. And uh, actually, and we can go into this uh, at greater length, obviously, uh, the League was really the American attempt to answer that question, how to provide provide security to France, uh, not let France dismember Germany, which was France's number one objective, and would, if France had had its way, it would have carved Germany back into its constituent pre-1871 pieces. Um, and in order not to have that happen, Britain and the United States had to find some way to make France feel comfortable uh, with a Germany that was whole. Um, America was opposed to entangling alliances, as, uh, as was mentioned. Uh, it was not going to make a security pact with France. Uh, the closest thing that Americans could devise, and this wasn't Wilson's idea, as, as was mentioned, Roosevelt talked about it, Henry Cabot Lodge talked about it. Uh, the closest thing that Americans could imagine doing was having a league in which all theoretically uh, guaranteed to each other uh, the security and environment of their territory, but that, that 
Article 10 of the League of Nations Treaty was aimed directly at trying to reassure France. Um, ultimately, France was not reassured, and for good reason. Um, and the critical role of the United States in all of this uh, was that the balance in Europe had been completely overturned by the rise of German power. Uh, there was no way for France and Russia and even England to balance against Germany. The United States came in and, re and re refigured that balance uh, when it won the, helped win the war. Um, and the peace was supposed to reflect that new balance with the United States in the game. Uh, the peace failed because the United States pulled out. Eric. Um, so the beginning, the premise of the beginning comment and statement is, is that the war really, we're looking at how it began from the American perspective, but of course it began four years earlier and, and uh, the great powers that fell into this war, the greatest book recently on this is Christopher Clark, who really emphasizes that uh, the origins of uh, the war itself were multiple and each country had its own reasons for falling into this war and he would argue even its own sort of share of the blame for getting, uh, beginning the war, um, and none of them were uh, uh, idealistic notions of ending war for all time. From the German perspective, it was conquest in the East. From the Russian perspective, Mustafa can uh, talk about that. Um, if you look from the Ottoman uh, point of view up towards Russia, Russia was Russia's aim was to move into the Ottoman space. Uh, the Habsburg monarchy was just trying to preserve its its um, its position in Europe. So, um, the the idea that there were ideals behind the beginning of the war, I think, is 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 a little a little um, uh, off from the point of view of 1914 and how it all began. But then even in 1917, Wilson's decision to get into the war, uh, I would argue one of the biggest and most immediate consequences of that was to encourage the new, the newly democratic Russia after its February 1917 revolution to launch uh, perhaps the most ill-fated and uh, uh, offensive in the history of warfare, <laughs> one that brought immediately brought about the mass desertion of its armies and the collapse of the Russian Empire and its exit from the war uh, and um, the imposed peace then that Germany uh, uh, gave to the new Soviet Union at Brest-Litovsk, which is a theme that I think we should probably return to later, but I don't want to hog the floor for now. Happy to talk about Brest-Litovsk. Um, just uh, on the on the phrase, the war to end war, um, that's of course the title of H.G. Wells' 1914 book. Um, which was a kind of hopeful statement, uh, but that very quickly uh, became used as a, uh, became used sarcastically. David Lloyd George said, uh, yes, this is a war uh, to end all wars, just like the next one, right? Um, and uh, uh, Archibald Wavell later uh, sort of rephrased that and said, uh, at the time of the peacemaking, said this is a peace to end all peace uh, about, um, about Versailles. Now, of course, um, as someone who works on the Ottoman Empire in the Middle East, perhaps the most obvious point to make and to perhaps start out with is that the peace did not bring peace and end the war at all, especially uh, in the Middle East and in Africa and uh, Asia. 
President Wilson hoped that the treaty would establish new precedents in international affairs, and you've uh, hinted at some of that, and certainly in Mike's opening remarks, uh, that there would be a, a, a new path going forward, uh, peace, peaceful relationships built on states uh, with national self-determination and multilateral institutions uh, influencing uh, outcomes. Was the treaty truly transformational, or was it more transactional in the traditional sense of power politics leading up to that period? Eric, I see. Oh, okay. um, well, I, I mean, one of the biggest uh, stories of the end of World War I is the breakup of the great continental empires into, I would say, well, some kind of nation states, but actually, in practice, uh, smaller new multinational empire states, um, uh, Czechoslovakia, which included large minorities, Poland, which included large minorities, uh, Yugoslavia, which was a conglomeration of different minorities. So, I mean, it wasn't, a, it didn't usher in the era of new nation states per se, but the principle was out there. And, and one thing that I think is important is that it didn't just come from Wilson's mind, this idea of transforming the world from a world of empires to a world of nation states. Uh, it was something that was inherent to the process of fighting of the First World War when both sides began to appeal to national movements, the Polish movements, uh, the um, um, Ukrainians and others across borders as part of fighting the war. And then that continued and was confirmed in the process of the Brest-Litovsk peacemaking uh, uh, sort of process in which Germany uh, created a independent uh, Ukraine as a, as a kind of a puppet state, but endorsed this principle of breaking up the, the former Russian empire into component national parts. So there's kind of a continuity of step-by-step -step moving from empires to the world of nation states or, or something other than empire. <laughs> to the dissolution of the empires that doesn't just come from the mind uh, of Wilson. And of course, we all know that Wilson was very inconsistent himself. And um, when he looked at the world outside of Europe, he definitively did not endorse the idea of national independence movements, much to the disappointment of people like Ho Chi Minh who were in Versailles and, and heard this and had, had great expectations and went back disappointed. So so I guess that's my, my main sort of thought is that this idea of the movement from uh, a world of empires to world of nation states has a prehistory of Wilson and of course a post-history as well. Just then to build on that, um, Eric, the Russians being uh, not part of the Paris negotiations, um, what, would, what, what, what would have been the consequences had Russia been included? Well, that's the big question. In 1919, what is Russia? Because um, it, in 1919, there was the Civil War was really at uh, its it, it was really getting fully underway, and the white armies were doing quite well during the negotiations, marching north towards uh, Moscow. Uh, the the United States and and the Allies obviously favored the the white armies because they uh, did not recognize Brest-Litovsk and the and the departure from the war. They had they had you know been uh, our allies throughout the early stages of the Civil War. The Bolsheviks, who controlled the capital and the center, uh, had been the ones who uh, withdrew the, Russia from the, from the war by encouraging mass uh, desertions from the army. So uh, it's just hard to imagine a counterfactual where uh, the Bolsheviks would be invited to Versailles? No. Uh, the whites, they didn't actually control that much of the country. And there were four different contending white 
movements and many different political uh, sort of contending groups within the white movement as well. So I just can't really think of how technically they could have sure. been at the table. So they would have been there. The what ifs are, you know, it's risky business anyway, isn't it, That's to right. say what ifs. So, so instead, let's flip that and say, what's the consequence of, their, of them not being at the, around the table? Uh, explore that some more. What do you think the consequences of that were? Well, I, I mean, Bob and, and Mustafa can come in on this too, on the, the idea that any comprehensive attempt at peace that doesn't include the losers is got a big problem. And uh, we all know that Germany was loser number one, but loser number two was the Soviet Union. And uh, they were not only not included, but they were actively excluded from any kind of rethinking of the uh, alliance structure and the, the security structure of Europe, not just during the Versailles process, but for many years after. I mean, it was, wasn't until the 1930s that some of the, uh, some of the allies rec recognized the validity of the Soviet regime. So talk about excluding a you know, uh, a, a major, formerly great, and soon to be great power again from the comprehensive, supposedly comprehensive settlement of Versailles, I think is an, it's a very important point. Any other? Well, it just, uh, the, the, the fact of the of Bolshevik Russia affected to some extent both British and American policies toward toward how to deal with Germany. Um, there were a number of reasons why the British and the Americans disagreed with the French about. I mean, the French just wanted Germany destroyed and obliterated for eternity. Um, there were a number of reasons why the British and the Americans didn't want to do that. But one was that they were already thinking of Germany as a potential bulwark against the spread of Bolshevism. They were also worried that Germany itself itself would uh, succumb to revolution, which is one reason they didn't want the economy destroyed. Um, but so already, not, far from how do you bring the Russians in, they're already establishing uh, what they hope will be the check on what seemed at the time to be the very frightening uh, spread of Bolshevism throughout Central and Eastern Europe. And could I just add that um, it's it's easy to forget that uh, Bolshevism almost did win in Germany, even with the various measures to keep Germany intact. I mean, there was a Red Bavaria. Uh, in Hungary, there was a successful, for a time, uh, communist revolution. I mean, the world didn't know that the, Bol that the Bolshevik world revolution was going to fail at that point. And the idea of a cordon sanitaire to sort of wall off this 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 illness of uh, Bolshevism, um, and it was actually an illness as well because the, the total state collapse that happened in throughout the entire expanse of Eastern Europe led to one of the greatest epidemics of modern times. And I mean, the, the great flu that spread across this, the influenza epidemic that spread across this zone killed vastly more people than World War I killed. Um, and uh, so it was walling off not just <laughs> civil war and in internal disputes, but also literally, quite literally, quarantine to quarantine in some sense, you know, this part of the world. And I mean, just to add, perhaps, um, the events in Russia surely um, affected uh, how um, how Paris dealt with uh, the, the post-Habsburg lands uh, in contrast, you know, the quick recognition of uh, the constituent parts of, of Austria-Hungary uh, as sovereign states in contrast to uh, what uh, ensued in the Middle East, where the constituent parts of the Ottoman Empire uh, were not, um, of course, recognized as sovereign states, uh, but were turned into um, uh, quasi-colonies uh, that were then uh, designated as mandates. 
Uh, just to build on that, because it's such a good point, and it, it also it also gets to the incredible complexity uh, that all these statesmen had to had to deal with, which is why I think we should have a certain amount of sympathy uh, for whatever the failings were. Which was because Russia was no longer a reliable ally, that had been France's key check on German power. So France was actually the driving force between for the expansion of an independent Polish state, which included taking German territory, which was later a source of German revanchism, and also for the establishment of as strong as possible Czechoslovakia, both of which were supposed to, in France's eyes, take the place of Russia as the, as the eastern Czech on German power. So do you think that without the treaty that you still would have had the, uh, the breaking up of the empires and the creation of those nation states? Would that have happened anyway? Well, the Austro-Hungarian Empire had already been fallen. That wasn't a decision made at Versailles. That had already happened. The question was what to do with the pieces of it. And w I'm sorry, but Wilson, by the way, clung to the idea of holding Austria-Hungary together throughout the war longer than others did, partly because he was hoping to woo Austria away from Germany and make a separate peace. He came fairly late to the idea that we were going to have to let Austria-Hungary fall apart. But it fell apart of its own volition—I mean, of its own— uh, you know, as a result of the conflict. Mustafa, why don't you reflect with us on the impact of the war on the Ottoman, uh, the fabric of that empire? Well, as far as Wilson is concerned, I would say that Wilson and um, the British did not really uh, see eye to eye at all uh, with respect to the Ottoman Empire. Um, uh, the British were already talking in 1914 of uh, a uh, new British empire in the Middle East, um, the quick conversion of Egypt from occupation in 1914, December 1914, from, uh, from occupation to a protectorate, uh, and then um, talk about uh, annexing and incorporating Egypt uh, as a way to balance the future French occupation of Syria. Uh, so already in 1914, the British and the French uh, were uh, discussing uh, what to do with the Ottoman Empire at, um, uh, at war's end. Whereas Wilson, of course, in point 12, uh, says that the Turkish-speaking parts uh, of the Ottoman Empire, in other words, Anatolia or Asia Minor, uh, would have an unmolested opportunity to develop uh, its future, uh, and so would the um, so would the uh, the Arabic. Uh, speaking lands of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, but those, of course, uh, by 1918 were occupied uh, by uh, primarily British and, and French forces, uh, and so um, uh, did not really have that, uh, have that opportunity that Wilson was talking about. Uh, Bob, you have argued that the last 70 years are a historic aberration and that we risk returning to the normal, that this is not the new normal, what we're experiencing is in fact an aberration. Uh, reflect for us for a few minutes about that and talk to us about what do you think the Treaty of Versailles teaches us that helps us understand how we came to this place of the not normal. And we'll talk a little about the, the, the risk uh, in, in the conversation uh, yet to be. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, 
the world is configured today is not so very different, uh, you know, in a geopolitical sense than the world of the Versailles era and, and before, because uh, what you really have that was new then uh, was the potential introduction, I say potential because it ultimately was not a full introduction, of American power into the global equation. I mean, previously the United States had obviously been, it was never isolationist, but it was it didn't conceive of itself as being a player in the international scene. As I mentioned before, um, had it not been for the United States entry into the war, the war probably would have ended in some kind of stalemate at best with Germany in control of substantial, if not dominant, parts of the European continent. That's where the war was headed. Um, and what would have happened after that, I'm sure there would have been another war at some point, just as there was. Um, what the United States did was bring its own power to bear and re and establish a different balance. The outcome of the war reflected the introduction of American power, and the Versailles Treaty reflected the introduction of American power. And I think that there was actually a possibility, if the Americans had stayed in and approved the treaty and played the role that it designated for itself in the Versailles Treaty, both on reparations and on participating in the occupation of, of the Rhineland for a brief period or for a few years, uh, that you might actually have avoided uh, World War II, because the great, you know, because the United States was the deus ex machina that was capable of bringing a new stability to Europe. I bring that up because that is what happened after World War II um, and continued to happen. Basically, the United States, after World War II, made the world safe for, made, made Germany safe for the world in a way that it had not after World War I. The, the, the great peace of Europe that we have seen since World War II was initially, and I think continually, based on the premise that the United States, that Germany could be allowed to be whole and powerful and rich, uh, but the, not because the United States would check it and, it and its neighbors needn't fear it. So that was the formula that was rejected by the United States in uh, when, it, when the League of Nations Treaty and the Versailles Treaty were rejected in Congress and accepted by the United States uh, after 1945. It's, uh, there was a general public uh, um, acceptance, it seemed, across the U.S. for many of the principles uh, in, at Versailles, um, but that was not the case, of course, for the Congress. Uh, what was the consequence, then, of it not being ratified? Um, why, why did that happen? Uh, well, I, I, you may be shocked to know that partisan politics played a huge role in the in the defeat of the uh, of the treaty. Um, I won't go into great detail about this. You can read the book if I ever finish it. Um, but um, basically, they ha you know, uh, more things that are going to shock you. They were all thinking about the 1920 election. Uh, both sides knew that if Wilson passed his great treaty in 1919, that it would give an enormous boost to the Democrats, and possibly Wilson himself, who was actually contemplating a third term in 1920. Henry Cabot Lodge considered it his absolute obligation as the leader of the Republican Party to defeat the treaty uh, in any way necessary. And he rather quite brilliantly, the legislative tactics were brilliant. I think all things being equal, the, the treaty would have passed, um, but he managed to defeat it, and almost entirely, not for doctrinal reasons, as historians seem to think, but in my view, almost entirely for partisan reasons. The consequence of which, again, is that 
the Versailles Treaty was dead on arrival. The Versailles Treaty depended on the United States playing its role in numerous fronts in order to succeed. That was what was built. It's ridiculous to talk about the failure of the Versailles Treaty. It never had a chance once the Americans pulled out of it. Could I just add one thing? I mean, I, I've long thought that to blame the Versailles Treaty for World War II and, and et cetera is, is a bit of a stretch because really it was the Great Depression. If you didn't have 30% of the German, of German young men on the streets joining uh, brown shirt uh, paramilitary organizations, you wouldn't have had the Nazi rise to power. And without the Nazi rise to power, the world would have been very different. World War II probably wouldn't have happened, at least in the form it took. So that's something we, we underestimate. And the causes of, I think, economic historians who've looked really closely at the causes of the Great Depression, uh, a very few would say that uh, uh, reparations are in the top five or even top ten most important causes. So, you know, the treaty is pretty distant from from the Great Depression origin story, which is the origin story of World War II, in my mind. There's a, a, a question from the audience. Wilson took many experts with him to Versailles. Why did he not include Lodge and other Republican leaders in the peace negotiations? Yeah, I, it's, a, uh, it's a good question, and it's a question that historians continually ask. I think it's a little like saying, why doesn't Barack Obama bring Mitch McConnell with him to, the, to any treaty that he was going to sign? Lodge and Wilson were bitter enemies, both personally and politically. Lodge did not want to go. That was never an option. The, there were other potential Republicans that, um, that Wilson might have chosen. Probably the leading choice, I think, in retrospect, Respect and maybe and also at the time would have been someone like Elihu Root, who was the sort of senior statesman of the Republican Party. Um, Wilson didn't trust Root, and Wilson was his own problem. I mean, he didn't want anybody around who was going to tell him uh, what to do. But I, I think it's wrong to assume that even if he'd brought Elihu Root, that Henry Cabot Lodge would therefore have allowed the treaty to pass. So I think a lot of there's a lot of being made of that that is not really very important. Let's reflect uh, for a few minutes then about what we learned. What, what, what have we learned about the purpose of treaties? based on Versailles. So coming from Versailles, what, what have we learned about the purpose of peace treaties? I would return to that point of uh, when, if you're looking at a comprehensive peace to end an entire global conflict or an, an entire era like the Cold War, it's very important to include the losers, and that is really, really hard to do conceptually and practically because um, it, it involves a, a total shift of the way of thinking about global politics and alliances that people just can't really do. I mean, it, we, there, were, there was talk about transcending NATO with something that included the uh, formerly communist space in the 1990s, but I mean, there was Brussels, there, was, uh, there, were, there were infrastructures, there were habits of mind, and we just weren't able to transcend that. And I think uh, Wilson, for all his great ideas, also, it, it was impossible to transcend after four years of total war and, and not have a punitive peace towards Germany. And uh, it's, it's, it's a, I think, a fundamental question whenever we think of a fundamental overall restructuring of uh, a global system of alliances, it's, it's pretty darn hard to pull off, if not impossible. I mean, just like the war in 1914 had um, many different causes and many different contexts, uh, so did the peace have many contexts. So Germany obviously is 
um, perhaps the most important one. I would say for um, for the Middle East, me, for the Middle East, if the purpose of 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 peace of a peace settlement is to settle conflict, uh, the very opposite. Uh, of course, happened in the Middle East, um, unsettled uh, the whole region, the entire region for uh, for decades, even a century uh, to come, uh, created a great deal of uh, disillusionment with um, liberal democracy, with uh, international law and international diplomacy. Um, uh, that was held out at uh, at Paris and uh, by the peace um, by the peace conference. What uh, commitments were made uh, to the Ottomans in the peace in the uh, the Paris peace conference, if any? Um, well, of course. Um, I mean, as uh, as we now well know, the whole world embraced the idea of uh, the principle of self-determination that uh, surrounded um, the, the the peace talks. Um, and we should, of course, also note that this idea for sovereignty and self-determination is not something. Uh, that uh, that that Wilson uh, invents, but that has a long 19th century uh, history. In fact, um, the causes of the First World War in uh, in Africa and Asia is, of course, wrapped up with anti-colonial uh, movements uh, that have been going on um, uh, for uh, uh, for throughout the 19th uh, century. Uh, the demand for sovereignty. Uh, had been um, uh, was not just a post World War One phenomenon, of course, but had its uh, had its roots in the uh, deep in the 19th century. But what 1918, what 1919 brought, and what Wilson brought, uh, was a forum in which um, these movements could articulate their demands for uh, for independence and uh, uh, the shock uh, of that. Uh, of that disappointment with the peace settlement uh, uh, has, of course, reverberated uh, through these parts of the world, uh, even down to today. Uh, well, one of our uh, audience are asking for you to reflect on the Arab revolt against the Ottomans uh, and the presence of Arab delegates in Paris. Mm -hmm. So I see that as a piece um, that uh, Eric uh, has already touched on as, as a way in which the war was fought, namely to appeal to um, first world war. It can, of course, be read or, or um, it's um, the recent scholarship reads it as a conflict among and between empires. Uh, and so one way in which the war was waged um, was, of course, by appealing to uh, various peoples within those multi-ethnic uh, empires uh, for, um, uh, for, uh, for alliances or for uh, um, anti-imperial movements. And so the Arab Revolt of 1916 uh, should be seen as as part of that, but it's also interesting that that so-called Arab Revolt really um, it happened in 1916. It doesn't happen in 1914. It happens at a point in the war when um, things uh, uh, look bad for the Ottomans, when uh, uh, Egypt uh, and um, uh, the southern parts of uh, of Iraq are of course already 
occupied by um, by the British, uh, and uh, it's only in 1916 that the Sharif uh, of Mecca then throws in uh, his um, uh, his lot with with the British. Um. We've talked a little about the, uh, the this question of uh, the treaty and World War II. Um, the, a question that we have uh, uh, is around the, was the treaty fundamentally flawed or was there a lack of adherence and enforcement to its terms, which then contributed to the rise of nationalism and other such movements? Well, I'm, I'm going to, at the risk of repeating myself, I mean, the the treaty, of course, was flawed. There was no, sure. I mean, it was made by human beings uh, and and dealing with incredibly complicated problems. But I don't think the treaty was inherently unworkable. Um, what we what happened as a you know after 1919 is the failure of the treaty being fulfilled, largely again by the American contribution, which which had multiple dimensions. Um, you know, I, I actually think you can obviously point to the to the Great Depression as being, I would say, more an accelerant of trends, a decisive catalytic accelerant. But there were already things at work. Um, for instance, if you look at the French invasion of the Ruhr um, in uh, 1923, that has a huge effect on Germany. Obviously, it, it has a great bolstering effect to German nationalism. It obviously it accelerates German inflation and you get the hyperinflation as a result of it. The French invasion of the Ruhr is almost a direct consequence of the absence of the Americans in the game. Uh, and also, by the way, the other wonderful American contribution is our, is the American continuing demand for full payment of the European debts, uh, the wartime debts, which put incredible pressure on the French to ha to demand even greater reparations from the Germans, and we created this vicious cycle uh, where Germany didn't pay, whether it couldn't have paid is another question, but it certainly put great strain on Germany to try to pay. The French, because they had to pay American debts, were being forced to squeeze the Germans even further. The fact that the Americans were no longer providing the security guarantee that they had promised meant that the French had to take these matters into their own hands, which leads to the invasion of the Ruhr, which I have to say some American diplomats at the time in 1923 said, this is the beginning of the end. And let's not forget, Hitler is already on the scene at this point. And um, he's not an immediate beneficiary of what happens in 1923, but he is an eventual beneficiary uh, of that. So there's a whole sequence of events that occur because the United States has decided not to play the role. We were supposed to be the chairman of the reparations committee deciding on reparations. When we left, the French took control of the reparations committee, um, and which led to a wholly different approach to reparations. I agree the reparations weren't the cause, but they certainly were an exacerbating uh, element. Uh, just to add one other thing, the exclusion of the losers, uh, Soviet Union and, and Germany, from being an inherent who, uh, part of the Versailles settlement was very consequential. I mean, at Rapallo, very shortly thereafter, a military, secret military set of agreements were signed and Germany began to rearm basically in the Soviet Union outside of the, the oversight of Europe and the world. And uh, the seeds were already planted for the Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, alliance, which really was the thing that 
started World War II. So, so excluding the losers again as a theme, I'd like to. How, how do you think that the um, that the dueling narratives in Germany? immediately after the war between the political leaders and the military leaders, the military leaders saying we got ripped off by the politicians, we actually, uh, you know, we, they, they, they negotiated a war that we would have won, uh, that they had, how did that then contribute to a change in public sentiment in Germany uh, around the war? What would have happened had that been a different outcome? Well, I mean, the military was lying. The military was the one who sued for peace. They begged the civilians to sue for peace. They didn't even admit to the civilians how bad the civilians how badly the war was going. And then all of a sudden, they said, "We need to have peace right now." So, but then, of course, they pushed the civilians out front to take the brunt of the political cost of signing the Versailles Diktat, as it was known in Germany. And they used, and then the result of which. Because the military sort of played ball with the Weimar Republic for a while, but the result of which is the Weimar Republic itself was born with real problems of legitimacy, precisely because it was blamed for signing this terrible treaty. And um, you know, the, the 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 biggest problem in Germany is that there was never really any widespread devotion to the republic itself, and it was pretty easy for conservative elements to say, "Let's go back to being the." Germany uh, that we were before this Weimar Republic thing is not working and but this the military's incredibly cynical blaming of the civilians for the for the treaty was a, was definitely a contributing factor to that just to add to that I mean it, it was especially a hard fall because even in March 1918 uh, the central powers weren't yet defeated and in fact it looked even as late as March 1918, it looked like um, uh, Germany in the Ludendorff Offensive uh, might um, at least uh, achieve a settled uh, peace, settled on a basis of equal partners. It, it really was the the eventual. You know, the Americans don't start pouring into Europe until the summer of '18 in any great numbers, and that is really what turned the tide. Not so much because of what the Americans actually did, although they they helped win some battles, but because all of a sudden the Germans realized that there was this absolutely unlimited supply of fresh soldiers by the millions that were going to be yeah. pouring into Europe, and they realized that that was the end. Yeah, Ten thousand a day yeah. wasn't it? The number coming in, right? At that point, I mean, it took us a long time to start getting troops into Europe, but once we did, the Germans realized that the game was over. Yeah. And, and sorry, and Germany never had the opportunity to tap into the resources that came with Ukraine and with Brest-Litovsk. Um, you know, some over 80% of Russia's oil uh, uh, resources would have been available to the Germans and all sorts of other. Um, uh, material um, um, gains. Mm -hmm. Here's another question uh, from the audience. Did Wilson get played by the leaders of Britain and France at Versailles, especially on reparations from Germany? Was Wilson not up to dealing with these leaders? I don't mean to be... Go ahead, go ahead. You're the... Well, n n no. <laughs> um, the, the, the loser at the at the Versailles Treaty was, aside from Germany, uh, was France. 
from their point of view. Uh, the, the French wanted much more in the way of guaranteed security, and they just couldn't get it from the Americans and the British. Um, I would say, by and large. And on reparations, um, the British were—Wilson uh, didn't oppose uh, he, he won the compromise of putting off the figure um, until—they never settled on a figure at Versailles. And so that was what the Reparations Commission was supposed to be for. And according to the treaty, the Americans were going to be the chair, the chairperson of the Reparations Committee. So uh, I, don't think, I don't think he got played. That was the big story. That's John Maynard Keynes's, you know, he was bamboozled by those wily Europeans. Um, but um, that's that—I that, I really don't think— think that was true. If anybody was in a strong position at, uh, in, in Paris, it, it was Wilson. He got what he wanted, which was the League. Um, he didn't really disagree fundamentally with some of the border issues. There were things that he was upset about, about, you know, Fiume and Shantung and things like that, where he did lose, but that was losing, in those cases, to the Italians and the Japanese. So I don't think that's the case. I just one other thought. I was thinking through the counterfactual of what if France had gotten everything it wanted at Versailles, broken up Germany into component parts, etc. It still would have been an extremely powerful industrial base of the component parts. And I think we forget that Nazism was not just a, a, a one-country movement. It was truly an international movement. Mark Mazower has written a beautiful book about that that really emphasizes how the appeal of Nazism transcended borders. And it's, it's easy to imagine in a counterfactual these component broken up parts uh, having some variant of fa a fascist movement movement that could uh, reunite Germany. It would be a powerful r rallying cry, too, with reflections back to the great 1870 sort of national uh, awakening and movement in Germany, unification. And so I, 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 don't, I don't know, you know? How could, and how could you have sustained—who was going to sit on all these Germans? Right. Um, the French couldn't do it by themselves, and Wilson and the, the British and the Americans were definitely not saying, we're not going to do a permanent occupation of anger. German territory. Uh, so what the French wanted was really unachievable. And in a way, dealing with the, 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 the treaty was a way of satisfying unachievable French demands. So, so the, the wars preceding World War I and the interaction of the French with others, well, how did that impact the French's attitude, the attitude of France, uh, the Franco-Prussian uh, war and such? Uh, what, 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 um, so this is a question from the audience. Um, how important was the Franco-Prussian War in France's attitude toward uh, Germany at the end of World War One? Super important. <laughs> Talk about that and why. Look, the French had every reason to want Germany removed from the face of the earth after what had happened to them now twice. And, um, you know, they they never had it. They did not think the Germans could be reformed. They thought a German was a German was a German. That was, a, you could, uh, there's a quote on that. I don't know whether it was Clemens or somebody else. And so what they wanted to do was make it impossible for Germany to do that again. Their minimum demand was to basically change the border so that the Rhine would be the border between France and Germany so that you couldn't have this uh, 
And the, the French were perfectly aware that they were the only ones who had this problem. That's why they were the ones who lost the, the, lost the treaty to some extent. Um, the British and the Ameri the British had the Channel, the Americans had the Atlantic Ocean, the French had nothing uh, between them and the Germans. And uh, all of France was completely shell-shocked by being defeated by the Germans for a second time uh, in 40 years, and were not wrong to fear time number three. And there were no potential allies anywhere to be had because Russia was uh, in civil war, East Europe was fractured, I mean. Um, could the Weimar government have done anything different to have bolstered um, their weak starting legitimacy? I, I, this is a really complicated story. I, I, the Weimar government had done pretty well, actually, by around 1925, 26, 27. Stresemann did a good job of dealing with the diplomacy um, and the economy, partly as a result of, of the Dawes plan and, and other American infusions of capital, uh, was doing pretty well. Um, the sequence of events that led to the undoing of the Weimar Republic is, an is a very complicated sequence of events. And the only thing I would have to say, it, it does precede the Depression, because it's really 1930 that things begin uh, to go south. And I think, personally, that's related to the agreement, which, again, the Americans helped engineer, which uh, removed French troops from the Rhineland five years earlier than the, uh, than the uh, treaty had called for. The existence of French forces in the Rhineland was a huge check on German domestic politics. The Germans knew that if they elected anybody or put anybody in power or overthrew the democracy, that this would be an excuse for the French to come in and attack. When the French were no longer able to do that, um, it, the, I think it's more than coincidence that that is when uh, the German government uh, shifted uh, toward a more conservative and less democratic government, which then ultimately leads to um, Hitler taking power. Another question uh, from the audience about Wilson's absence. What impact did Wilson not being on the scene during the 1920s uh, have on the post-Versailles period? I feel like I'm talking too much, so <laughs> you know Wilson. Go for it. Go for it. Well, I, I don't I don't know if it's Wilson. I mean, that if Wilson had been president in the 1920s, is that what we're talking about? Uh, you mean uh, if he'd won a third term? And, perhaps. Yeah. You know, I, I think I think things would have been different. But again, that is one of those counterfactuals that yeah, you know right. you don't know where to right. go with because the fact is the country, in the form of the Congress, rejected an American role in Europe. Uh, the president who the, the candidate who ran on that platform of non-involvement, yeah. uh, uh, Harding won an overwhelming landslide, the biggest landslide in history um, in 1920. So to talk about what if Wilson had been, uh, you know, the country in a way had made its decision and the politicians who led the country in the 1920s reflected that decision. I think we could see that, uh, you know, you have to sometimes say this is what the public decided, folks. Um, and we, we know what that what what that's like. Yeah. 
Let's then go back to the treaty. Uh, Bob, you've argued that uh, it was flawed from the beginning because of the uh, that it wasn't generally uh, adopted, and the US uh, not having ratified. However, it, it was. Let's talk about what might there be some strengths and what were its weaknesses? What are the weak points of the treaty as it stood? What are the real strengths that came out of that? Each, each of you. Well, I mean, I think this goes back to the role um, and I suppose the legacy of Wilson in, in this whole process in these few years. Um, I'm not so sure Wilson got everything that, or, or most everything that he wanted. His vision of, at least on paper, his vision of international order was very different from what actually ensued. What did ensue was the expansion of British and French empire, at least until the Second World War. Um, and so um, I think it, you know, a, a more robust treaty perhaps uh, would have been to uh, uh, to put into check, to create some balance, international balance, and to curb the expansionism of, uh, to put checks on the British and the French, which, uh, which Wilson wasn't able to do. I'd say the, the fundamental failure of Versailles was to create a new balance of power, and, and the idea that uh, the new states of Poland and Czechoslovakia and, and Hungary could be um, a balance, serve a balancing function, uh, proved, we know, not to have worked, in part because they didn't really cooperate with each other because of territorial disputes and cross-border things that seem very petty today, but probably, um, in a sense, I mean, should have been foreseen that, that these new uh, nation-states would not suffice to create a balance with France against what everyone should have known would be a resurgent Germany. I mean, it was the greatest, most modern industrial power on the planet, not just, I mean, America was rising, but still, Germany was the center of science, industry, everything, and the war didn't touch that. And everyone should have known that Germany was gonna rise again very soon, and that the fundamental question at Versailles should have been creating a new balance against it, and it really failed to do that. I mean, again, it failed to do that because the, the, a key player didn't play, right? And so I don't know whether the balance, I think the balance would have been different, certainly, if the United States had been in the game, and then you wouldn't be relying, as you correctly say, on these very weak reads. I think people did know that Germany would eventually be powerful again. The problem was, and again, you probably can sympathize, Lloyd George said, oh, it'll be 15 or 20 years, and it's like, yeah, that's right, <laughs> but, you know, but, but, it, but it's sort of like if you are now if you say, well, there's going to be a big problem 20 years from now. Look how well we deal with problems that we think are going to be coming 20 years from now. You know, you tend to be a little bit more short-sighted uh, about these things. Um, in, in principle, you're, you're certainly right that Wilson would have preferred, as any American would have, uh, you know, not expanding. We didn't fight the war to expand the British Empire or the French Empire. But clearly, from Wilson's point of view, priority number one, two, three, 
three and four was on the continent of Europe um, to have fought the necessary battle. He lost a battle with the British that he cared a great deal more about over the issue of freedom of the seas, which was one of his 14 points, which essentially meant that we don't want to have you imposing embargoes on us and blockades on us again. And he lost that battle because he thought he had to give things away in order to get the league. Um, he, as I say, he was very painfully upset about giving the Chinese, uh, the Chinese province of Shantung to the Japanese, which, by the way, led to Chinese revolution and all kinds of things, which he was very unhappy about. Uh, but he did that because he didn't want the Japanese walking away uh, from the league. Now, you could say, and people have said, he put too much, you know, A, he put too much stock in the importance of the league compared to these other things, which you could say, and B, he didn't realize that he actually had enough bargaining power to tell everybody to jump off a bridge, and he could still get his league. I mean, you could go both ways, but that is the reason, and I just have to think at the end of the day, the issue of the British Empire and the French Empire were not that high a priority for him. Um, it's not an accident if you look at the war. The countries that lost, lost their empires. The countries that won, kept their empires. Uh, and another question here from the audience. The current interest in Kurdistan leads um, to the question, uh, who were the nationalist winners and losers at Versailles? And why? Yeah. <laughs> Was President Erdogan in town? Um, I have to think for a second. Security is really good. We don't. We don't want to test it. But um, so. Of course, the, the treaty for Asia Minor for Anatolia uh, was signed at Sevres, signed in August uh, 1920, and it provided uh, for a referendum in uh, the Kurdish areas as they were defined by the treaty. Those Kurdish areas uh, excluded uh, Kurds in Iran, Kurds in Iraq, uh, and Kurds in Syria, what was becoming uh, Iraq and Syria, in any case, um, as part of the of the new mandates that were being set up, uh, the mandates, by the way, and, and the league, uh, the league articles were, of course, the first articles in all of the five treaties that were signed to settle the war: Versailles, um, uh, Noy, Saint Germain, uh, Sevres. Uh, and uh, Trianon, right? Uh, those five treaties all had, um, uh, as the first articles, the, uh, the endorsement or the ratification of the League of the League of Nations, and so um, uh, Kurdistan was uh, going to have uh, a referendum. Uh, and uh, that was, of course, upended by the armed resistance uh, that was then uh, organized and led by Mustafa Kemal, the later uh, Ataturk. Uh, in that armed resistance uh, that is now known in, uh, in, in history books as the Turkish War of Independence, um, that was really not yet an uh, ethno-nationalist uh, Turkish uh, conflict, but it was in fact fought by um, uh, Kurds and Turks uh, by uh, uh, an alliance, a coalition of uh, um, the Muslims of, uh, of Anatolia, of Asia Minor. Uh, and uh, Sev, of course, by 1922 then uh, was uh, um, 
uh, was dead in the water and then replaced by the Treaty of Lausanne in, uh, in 1923, and at that point there was no longer uh, consideration for creating uh, an independent uh, Kurdish um, state or polity. Can I just add another um, national supposed winner was Poland, which got a large uh, Ukrainian minority and a large uh, large territories that were German minority uh, majority, <laughs> um, and uh, Czechoslovakia, which got the Sudetenland. And you could say they were winners in some sense, but you could also say that this ensured that both the Soviet Union would have revanchist claims to a big chunk of Poland, which it acted on when it formed the alliance with. Hitler in 1939, and, and uh, part of that agreement was to annex those Ukrainian majority areas. Uh, and it ensured uh, German revanchism versus Poland would be a live issue throughout the interwar period, and a very important one. So I don't know if winners and losers is the way to frame it. Uh, Bob, you made comment about the uh, uh, Japanese and uh, Chinese uh, play. Question from the audience, had Japan played more of a role in the treaty, how might that have impacted the Sino-Chinese war or Japanese imperial aims? Well, I think that, you know, by and large, the Japanese saw World War I as a great opportunity uh, for them to move toward what if you wanted to look at it from their point of view, was taking, you know, sort of, uh, they had felt like, and correctly, that the European empires had been carving up Asia um, at their expense uh, for quite some time. And one of the reasons they underwent the sort of the, the, the Meiji reforms was to make Japan strong enough so that it could resist, so that it could compete effectively with these, um, with these other empires. And its number one objective was the Asian mainland where, you know, there were resources, especially Manchuria, um, etc. that Japan lacked for its growing population. And so uh, I say that all because Japan was on an already clearly expansionist trajectory. World War I provided a great opportunity for them because uh, Germany had taken control of the Shantung province and yeah, Japan would be delighted to make war, to join the Allies in the war on Germany so that it could take it for itself. Um, and uh, one of the things that Japanese wanted um, at the tr at the peace uh, uh, talks, as I think everybody remembers, is they wanted a statement about racial equality, um, which uh, Wilson wanted to do, uh, except he couldn't because the American, his own public, would have had a fit over racial equality. That's our country, folks. Um, but uh, but in any case, um, what the Japanese really meant by that was our equality, because they didn't consider. Them, they considered themselves superior basically to other Asians and so but that was really like take us seriously They didn't get that that probably caused a great deal of resentment But what they did get was the German territory and Shantung and other islands that they did expand their power uh, as a result of that so to say that they didn't participate, from their point of view, they participated just fine. And I don't know what else they could have gotten that they didn't get uh, through the level of their participation. And so it bears remembering that war actually is restarted by two of the victors of World War I, Japan and Italy, in 1931 and 1935. 
respectively, uh, rather than by any of the vanquished. Yeah, and Italy is another, you know, it's pure expansionism on Italy's part, you know, going after the so-called irredenta, you know, Italian nationalism demanding parts of what later became known as Yugoslavia and is now Croatia and whatnot, that really had almost, had very little to do with Italy. It was the beginning of, Ita as, as you say, it was the beginning of Italian expansionism uh, as well. And, you know, Mussolini comes to power partly on the back of nationalist bitterness that the Italians didn't get everything they wanted out of out of World War One. I. I mean, when you talk about the failure of the treaty, there's, there's all kinds of things that happened that were horrible that had nothing to do with the treaty. The treaty didn't even get it wrong, but you had a lot of these, you know, nationalist and expansionist uh, things going on that then played themselves out in the interwar period. What do you consider to be the greatest misconceptions or myths about the treaty and its impact on the world order and on negotiating peace agreements? One, that it ended the war. I mean, uh, you know, Robert Gerwarth wrote a really great book recently on uh, how why World War I failed to end, and it's, it's an important reminder that for half the continent, uh, the worst was yet to come, actually. Um, the uh, Civil War in the in the Soviet space killed uh, four or five times more people than World War I did. And uh, the <laughs> Mustafa can talk about uh, Southeast Europe and, and the incredible forced expulsions of, of populations back and forth and the great epidemics that swept across this land. I mean, the, the war did not end with Versailles. So that's myth, myth one. Myth number one. What are the myths? <laughs> or misconceptions? I mean, again, I think that the myth that this was really anything more than a great power settlement um, of a fairly traditional variety, the wild card being the strange sort of great power that the United States was, um, and uh, the, the sort of ambivalence and ambiguity of the American uh, of what American objectives were in this period. But other than that, it was a classic great power settlement, and a lot of the things that people were disappointed about was that it was a classic great power settlement, and a lot of the things that as we look back on it, I think the the myth is that it, is that it was anything other than that. Yeah, I would just agree that, that the fighting in many parts of the world not only continued but actually intensified. Right? If we think of uh, the Greek army's invasion in Anatolia, for example. So uh, another question from the audience. A uh, key point of the treaty was the forbidding of the Austrian-German uh, unification. Was this a punishment for either of these countries? Did it really matter? Uh, if these two German states unified into a greater German as envisioned by the revolutionaries of 1848. Well, you know, the, that was another French demand, um, and mostly what the French were trying to do was deal with the enormous population advantage that Germany had over France, which had been a source of French panic before the war and after the war. And so a lot of what French goals had to do with was parceling, was, was cu cutting up Germany as much as possible to reduce the population uh, of Germany. And you know what? It, it is worth remembering that if, if those parts of Germany 
Germany had not been hived off in various ways, however foolish it may have been. Nevertheless, from the French point of view, uh, the, the post-World War I Germany would have been massive massive if the parts of if the millions didn't go to Poland the millions didn't go to uh, Czechoslovakia if Hungary I mean if Austria was united with Germany it would have been a massive country and with all the potential uh, that uh, Eric talks about um, and so uh, did it ultimately matter it, it only mattered when we, we weren't willing to enforce it anymore um, but that was the that was the objective and I think from a certain point of view, it was an understandable objective. Whether it was an attainable objective, ultimately, is another question. Well, and, you know, ultimately, a corporal who was an Austrian citizen ended up leading a transnational fascist movement that did unite uh, Austria with Germany. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> what do you say? Yeah. <laughs> Let's uh, return to some earlier comments uh, in, uh, that we had before about the, the, the failure of that period, this catastrophe of World War I and its post-World War I time. H how did that uh, contribute to and what was, uh, what, what, what was the outgrowth of that which led to the uh, experience that, uh, Bob, you point to of the the, not the new normal, but the, uh, an aberrant experience for the world, an aberrant period for us. How did the war and its aftermath contribute to that? Well, I mean, it was lessons. It was lessons learned, and so, for instance, it uh, it had to do. Uh, it, it certainly was related to the idea of unconditional surrender and complete occupation of Germany, and even uh, the division of Germany uh, between the Soviet Union and and the Western powers. Um, the idea of leaving Germany intact and independent uh, that was decided. That was a mistake. <laughs> Um, uh, and then uh, I bought at the same time, um, I think the founders of the post-war order were very conscious, as they did in the case of Western Germany, of the need to restore the German economy, um, to make it uh, once again an integral part of the European economy. A lot of that was driven by fear of communism. It wasn't just the lesson of World War I, but um, the desire to quickly reintegrate uh, the Germany that was part of uh, certainly West Germany. I think was one of the was also one of the sort of lessons learned, and the other lessons learned were learned lessons learned over the course of the 20s and 30s, having to do with economic policy and economic autarky and things like that. Anyway, that's what occurs to me. Yeah, what occurs to me is that uh, even if you if you take the assumption that you had a perfect Versailles, a perfect treaty with absolutely the best you can ever imagine, the world would still have faced an enormous challenge in figuring out all of the inter-allied debts and how to f how to how to balance, how to bring the global economy uh, back to a stable place, because um, those problems, in some sense, were there no matter what. I mean, and uh, the you know everyone went off the gold standard. They all moved to something new. Um, people, uh, France started overvaluing its currency. Some people argue that that was one of the fundamental causes of the Great Depression that that overvalued currencies, reduced trade globally. I mean, that would have been enormous. And then if you uh, assume that. Uh, say uh, the Versailles Treaty happened after the Bolshevik Revolution. The Bolsheviks, one of their first acts was to abrogate all the debts that they owed to all of uh, the allies and to the rest of the world, and that included uh, the largest 
government-to-government uh, -government loan in world history to that date, which was from France to uh, Russia in 1906 to help stabilize things for its ally after it went through its first revolution. So um, th just that act of uh, a default on all the uh, all the debts that the former czarist empire owed to the world, that would have been an enormous challenge to try to figure out how to, how to manage that without a global economic catastrophe as well. So Versailles can kind of be overvalued, I think, sometimes. There were big problems that were independent of it. What made the moment so extraordinary in some ways is that in 1919, the world map was wide open as it rarely has been in, in history. Uh, and then to try to address that, uh, uh, to orchestrate the world from Paris, uh, under the exclusion of so much of that very world. Uh, it's really difficult to see how that could have had uh, a more um, realizable um, outcome. Uh, we are just a few minutes from needing to wrap up. So last question uh, for us. What might we learn from the treaty and its legacy that informs the current conditions of the world today. Margaret Macmillan has argued that there are ominous parallels between the world today, rise of nationalism in a variety of places, the shifting alliances, breaking up of, uh, or seeming of international order. How, what might we have learned from the treaty and its legacy that informs the current conditions of the world today? <laughs> <laughs> try, try not to hog the microphone here. Um, I, I guess, if, I mean, this is what I, I sort of mean by when you've mentioned this, what, what's an aberration and what's not an aberration. I mean, I think that we are used to looking at the rise of nationalism and maybe the return of autocracy and the return of potential, you know, geopolitical competition as, oh my God, how did that happen? But of course, that is the norm. Um, that was the norm leading into World War One. It was the norm leading out of World War One. Um, and really, it's only after 1945 and really in some respects only after 1989 that we get this sort of new, what we conceive to be normal, which is really quite abnormal. And if you ask what are the ingredients of abnormality, um, I, I continue to believe, and it's a very, you know, I hate to be so America-centric, but the United States is in such a peculiar position in the world in terms of its geography, its wealth, and its power, uh, which which gives it a sort of unique ability to be in multiple places with, with large number of forces in a way that can provide stability and security. Um, I really think that that was where we tiptoed up to playing that role um, after World War I and, and pulled back from it. Uh, we undertook to, to take that role after World War II and for the next 70 plus years. Uh, but now I would say normality in the American psyche is returning because it was abnormal for anybody to take on the role we took on after World War II, and it was particularly abnormal uh, for Americans. And I think ambivalence toward playing this kind of role in the world is the norm uh, for Americans. And I think ever since really the end of the Cold War, Americans have been increasingly asking, could you please remind us why we're doing this again? And um, nobody's really been persuasive 
to explain that to them. And so we are returning very much to the country that we were in 1919. I don't know if that's what Margaret McMillan means, probably it isn't, um, but I think that the trends she identifies are inevitable. The only question is, is the deus ex machina gonna continue to be the deus ex machina? And I, I have my doubts, obviously. Yeah, it's a really important point, I think, that America tends to swing too far um, from one extreme to the other of trying to run the world to totally stepping back from it. And, and the, the, just the, the episode with, in Kurdistan and with the, the, the sudden U.S. Uh, uh, reversal of its policy there, I think is a good reminder that um, even on the margins, America still has enormous impact in specific places in the world that are very important. And, and uh, maybe that's one of the lessons of Versailles, that, that uh, stepping back uh, has its costs as well. I mean, it's also debatable, right, uh, to what extent U.S. involvement across the globe has been a stabilizing factor. Uh, and I would say for the Middle East, it's perhaps not so much going back to 1919, but going back to 1914 and the, the period before then that actually um, had a polity in which um, uh, people of different, um, of great difference, of ethnic and religious, linguistic difference were able to accommodate, to be accommodated in a, in a single, in a single polity. Uh, and the, uh, the partitioning and the separating out into uh, various peoples uh, vaguely on this principle of self-determination has of course served the region much less well uh, arguably, the people of the Middle East, uh, in terms of political rights even, were better off before 1914 since, uh, 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 than since then. Uh, uh, there's a parliament in 1908 uh, in Istanbul uh, with Muslim, Christian, and Jewish delegates in a parliament. There are empire-wide elections. Uh, there's a constitution. Uh, there are features of a polity that I think today uh, we wouldn't mind uh, seeing at all. Uh, in 1920, uh, a Congress assembles uh, in Damascus with a constitution. Uh, it, uh, it says they represent uh, all the various peoples of uh, Syria uh, at the time, and uh, they make, uh, adopt a number of resolutions, they make a number of demands. Demand number one is that Syria should be uh, a constitutional monarchy and should be completely independent uh, and sovereign. Uh, and resolution number two is, if that sovereignty, for whatever reason, shall not be granted by the League of Nations, then an American mandate over Syria would be acceptable for a period of no longer than 20 years. Uh, and then it says, and if that's not possible, then a British mandate could be possible. Under no circumstances do we want the French, and what do they get? They get, they, they, they get the French. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, our time has, has passed. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Mustafa Aksakal, Robert Kagan, and Eric Lohr. for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, 
visit usip.org slash podcasts. 